Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. I'm Alex Stewart, your host. Today is show 292 and I have joining me once again, Helena Norberg-Hodge. You might remember my inviting Helena the first time she was on the show, probably about a year ago now, to discuss uh, global economy, local economy and a sustainable path forward. And we spoke a lot about her history, working in the space of localization, local economy transformations and bolstering, uh, decreasing reliance on foreign interests in places like uh, throughout the Asian continent. And uh, it was very much a look at what has been done up until this point. But today in the show, Helena and I are actually discussing localization practicalities uh, in the face of huge industry interests now controlling so much of pharmaceutical, science, media, government with being able to donate to politicians around the world, regardless of what party they stand for, and how clouding that is of what justice and what progress actually mean, what freedom actually means. And it's a topic that I have been really pondering a lot, especially over the last couple of years, as I have seen friends, family, industries completely polarised over uh, topics that have been forced into uh, political polarisation groups uh, and hijacked instead of all of us having these complicated, messy, murky, grey area conversations about all of those shades of grey in between black and whites and really remaining focused on holding industry and leadership to account uh, rather than fighting each other. And I've, I, can't, I often wonder how we actually come out of this dynamic of uh, fight spirit on things like social media or around the dinner table where you can't actually talk about certain topics because uh, people will literally stop talking to each other completely if you do. And I come from a French family where people vehemently disagree on topics and debate in quite heated conversations, but it's very much see you next time when you finish the dinner party. Culturally, debate is completely acceptable on my French side, and yet on my Aussie Anglo-Saxon side, it's not. And we think of that, you know, Victorian properness that we inherit from a lot of Uh, English history, for example, where certain topics are just not to be discussed. Uh, It's impolite for a woman to talk about politics, all that kind of stuff. And I wanted to have Helena back because she is such an incredible big picture thinker and so au fait with the complexity of networks that got us to where we are today as well as so seasoned in her experience in seeing what truly moves the needles for creating sustainable, healthy, connected communities 
on the ground. And so today's conversation is not for the faint hearted. It's one of those ones that's about getting us to be big picture, murky water thinkers and uh, dive in rather than uh, try and feel safe in a black and white view of things. So uh, enter at your own risk and benefit, folks. Uh, I very much think it's a benefit to start thinking uh, bigger picture and uh, about all the complexity of what we face today in our world. And I know we're all on team human at the end of the day. So if we can focus more on our overlaps and find ways to come together, uh, then we're going to actually start to see a lot more of what we want in the world. So less othering, less fighting and more curiosity and complexity in our debates to see how we carve a path forward that's more peaceful, healthier, where people feel more included, connected, and aligned to some sense of purpose. We're talking about all of that today. So I'm going to hook into that conversation just a little minute. I have two wonderful sponsors that support our show, and without our sponsors, this show could not be a weekly offering for you guys uh, across all of the crazy, fantastic topics that we're able to bring you. Uh, we have, of course, our major sponsor, Oz Climate. They're beautiful Winix air purifiers, such high-performance machines. Fantastic if you live in the city when it comes to pollution, if you've got pets when it comes to dander, if you have people with allergies in your family when it comes to things like dust mites or mold or pollen. Uh, and then, of course, for people who have mold illness or SIRS who perhaps can't get out of their apartment or house straight away or you're waiting to save up to remediate, an air filter is brilliant for so many reasons, as well as for people who live regionally and in country areas where pollution might be more linked to things like agricultural chemicals. They also have my favourite appliance of all time, the trusty dehumidifier. I genuinely believe anyone who lives in humid areas or areas prone to a lot of rain or people who live in uh, older houses or houses that have, might have sort of rising damp issues or you might just feel like things are a little too damp in, indoors and you can easily test that with a hygrometer. If it's over 60% humidity inside, then you really want to start looking at why. Is it a climate issue or is it a building issue? Building biologists can, of course, help step you through that, but having a dehumidifier is going to be your health insurance, if you like, for preventing the mould from growing in those environments. I'm a big fan of chucking my dehumidifier on after the evening family showers or while we're doing uh, a wash. If we're using the dryer, we don't have a condenser dryer uh, at this point in time. And uh, if it's raining a lot and we're having to use the dryer, then that keeps the humidity down. Even if you're running a stock or making a soup and there's a lot of steam in the kitchen, a dehumidifier is fabulous for keeping that indoor air humidity under 60%. So Oz Climate, your uh, code is LOWTOXLIFE for 10% off all throughout the year of 2022. Jump on the website or give them a buzz and discuss what might be the best appliance and appliance size for your living space. Our second sponsor is this month. I'm just letting you know and reminding you of the fantastic product that is the Arctic Cod Liver Oil from Nordic Naturals. If you're not familiar with Nordic Naturals, it's one of the best 
EPA, DHA uh, delivery supplements in the world. But what really gives them the edge is the nth degree to which they go for purity uh, with their very sophisticated filtration system. So you don't have to worry about dioxins, PCBs, uh, heavy metals, a lot of um, mercury and a lot of bog standard fish oils out there, a lot of oxidized fish oil. You definitely don't want to skimp when it comes to fish oil products. Arctic D cod liver oil, we really like the vitamin D added in the mix. So that's the one we use on their, in their range is just a fantastic health insurance policy. Uh, And I really love this video uh, called The True North, The Omega-3 Journey from Boat to Bottle. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, It starts with the founder, Huar Ohim. I hope I um, pronounced that okay. I I don't speak Norwegian. Um, But he was actually a professional gymnast in his early years, unfortunately retiring due to injuries. But one of the rehabilitating products he took back then was cod liver oil. Upping his dose to a therapeutic dose, he noticed that he had dramatic improvement in his muscles and joints. And as he got older, wondered whether he might be able to bring those benefits to the world. And Nordic Naturals was born from that. Uh, and their passion for sta- sustainability, sustainable fishery um, management is really actually inspiring. Uh, and what they're able to achieve and the dose they're able to deliver in a tiny little teaspoonful is superior to most of what I've ever seen on the market. So I'm a big fan and I would encourage you to check out the stockist list that we also have in the show notes and get in contact with a local stockist nearest to you. That might be a health shop or it might be online after a quick Google of Arctic D or Arctic cod liver oil, Nordic Naturals. Um, you can very easily find a bottle to purchase near you. Uh, we take a little teaspoon every day. Then if I'm playing a tennis comp or I'm a little bit more uh, demanding of my body, I up that to a second one and it really, really is something that I notice. And that's guided by, of course, my health professional in terms of dosages. Once you stray from what's written on the back of the bottle, it's really good to talk to a health professional who knows you about Um, what a medicinal dose might look like for you, because that varies depending on any number of things. Uh, Whether you're on blood thinners, for example, you would need to be on a different type of dose. Whether you are a child, uh, how much you weigh, um, many different factors. So uh, I just wanted to remind you of the brilliant brand that Nordic Naturals Cod Liver Oil is, and I hope you give it a go. Now, let's hook into this wonderful conversation with Helena. I can't wait to hear what your biggest takeaways, what gets you thinking out of today's conversation. Enjoy. Hello, Helena. How are you? I'm good. Very nice to see you. It's wonderful to have you back. Uh, in our initial conversation a couple of years ago, we talked a lot about Uh, your work and what you've seen on the ground and some of those key projects that got you refocused on resilience and building smaller, more um, malleable local networks of commerce, of connection. Uh, And today I really want to pick up from where we left off really and focus on what localization looks like to the average everyday person, but also to not ignore where we are now and how 
complicated or sometimes detrimental it could be if we accelerate too fast in a different direction um, economically, which, of course, anyone who's been following Sri Lanka has unfortunately seen um, with the organic issue and food availability. So let's start with globalisation. I said this offline, you know, I'm reticent to use words in positive or negative ways because there are always positives and negatives of everything and uh, our world is trying to uh, polarise us right now. People are seeing political opportunity in being for or against, pro or not pro, and it's, it's forcing us into quite divided camps. And I think that is the enemy of the beauty of something like the globalization, localization seesaw, and how we actually find um, our path back to what is really important. So globalization to you, what does it mean? Are there benefits that you've seen? And what are some of the biggest negative impacts? Well, first of all, it's really important from our point of view to distinguish between globalization as an economic path facilitated by global trade treaties. Now, some of that has been bilateral, some of it multilateral, and it was brought in as a vehicle, as a very central economic vehicle after the Second World War when the IMF and the World Bank were set up. They also set up something called GATT, which is the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. And that all, for most people, looked fine because the thinking was we've got to try to unify all economic activity around the world so that we don't have another world war, so that we don't have another depression. But actually, what was set in motion was a way in which governments, very much pressured by America, were opening up their doors to what were primarily American banks and corporations. So free trade actually from the beginning meant the freedom of giant multinational businesses to move in and out of every economy. Now, certainly in a limited way, in some places that looked like a huge improvement. I remember in India, even in the 80s, that some of the products produced by Indian industries were not as well made as some of the ones made by multinational, you know, Western companies. But I really believe that most people, if they had the opportunity to look at the impact over time, and even over a relatively short time, on countries worldwide, people had the opportunity to look at this globally, but looking at it not in terms of dollars and flows of money, but actually on the ground. What did this mean in Sri Lanka, in Japan, in Australia, in Nairobi, and wherever you go? What you would see is that this support for global corporations to move in and out has actually impoverished local economies, regional economies, and national economies worldwide. So this is why in every country you care to look at, you will see a widening gap between rich and poor, which is reaching obscene proportions. It's happened in Sweden. It's, and once you see it as a global pattern, then it's very hard to say that as a system that this has 
benefits. As a system, I see it as, yes, okay, you can say positive for a few billionaires, but for most of creation, for the majority of people on this planet, including for governments, it has meant an impoverishment and disempowerment. And along with that, it's allowed centralized global conglomerates in the form of banking and finance institutions to also amalgamate, uh, essentially to pressure for amalgamation, sorry. To say, you know, I so agree with you, there's nothing in the world that is all bad or all good. That's just how life is. You know, we might think that a cockroach, you know, is a really bad thing, we're just going to kill them off. No, they all have a function. But I am really keen that we start looking at the actions and thoughts of human beings and the systems they create. And there, I would not agree that everything has a bad and a good side to it. In other words, you know, murder, you know, unprovoked murder is not a good thing. And I would say also rampant commercialism, centralized control, a system that, as I said, widens the gap between rich and poor exponentially, and a system that today can only operate in monoculture. Monoculture on the land, human monoculture, standardization, even to the point of you know, testing the impact of a chemical or, or even of a pharmaceutical on individual human lives is becoming shoddier and shoddier as it becomes more and more large scale, more standardized, more globalized. So I think there's a real need to step back to look at the process of economic globalization through trade treaties. However, what has happened is that the giant corporations that have benefited from this have used a lot of money to persuade us that globalization is what has allowed us to travel around the world, which allows us to have planes and telephones and all kinds of things that we often have experienced as quite wonderful and enriching our lives. We don't realize that actually allowing a few monopolistic multinationals to have so much control is actually now responsible for the fact that most young people will have nothing of the wealth of experience that I had, for instance, as a young person. They are not even able to travel around the world that we all did, partly because they're being pressured so hard to study more and more meaningless bits of information, to try to get a job in a system where it's harder and harder to get a decent job and have enough uh, means to have a decent home and to be able with ease and grace to spend time with their children, spend time in nature. We're getting more and more, and I mean across the board, caught up in a rat race where more and more people are running after fewer and fewer jobs. Why? Unemployment absolutely doesn't exist naturally. It's a consequence of economic policy. So again, yes, we did have advantages from certain modern industrial opportunities. However, I do also want to point out that I actually am old enough so that I traveled by ship between Europe and America. And at that time, there were large, beautiful ships made of wood 
there were dozens of them. Every country had their own sort of lines and it was cheaper to go by ship than to fly. And it took about a week and it was a delightful journey. And I and right now can't give you all the detailed facts, but I can tell you that the economic pressures that made flying cheaper than going by ship are economic pressures that are linked to extracting wealth, what a few at the expense of the many. So there would be ways now as we look forward towards a world that is more kind to nature, a world where job opportunities, there's never scarcity of job opportunity, a world where we really do respect diversity, where we try to reconstitute the fabric of community, all of that, one of the more, I don't know, one of the more sort of, well, I, I can't think of a better way to describe that than to call it localizing instead of globalizing. But it's not actually about what you and I do. When I say you should localize, I should localize, I, I actually would talk about that in terms of the benefits of having longer term relationships, place-based relationships, and how healthy that is for our children. But I would actually advocate for most people to travel, to have experience of another culture, to be internationally engaged, to support and be part of collaborative movements across the world. So international exchange, including cultural exchange, including travel, I'm not a fan of mass tourism, quick in, quick out, just collecting some photos, but I'm very much in favor of this cultural experience and the experience of other ecosystems and landscapes. Again, not as a mass collector to have photos to show off with, but to have that experience, I think is, is very important. Yeah, and it, it's humbling so, as well. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think we need to distinguish then when we talk about globalizing and localizing between what are some of the things we can do as individuals and what are the policies we would like to support. And then for me, what's very important is what can we do at the community level? So one thing that's happened, I would argue again in these last 40 years of globalization, one of the things that's happened, more um, one of the things that's happened is that people who are working to protect the environment or to try to protect social justice of some kind or human rights, they were generally looking from a more local or national perspective. They weren't looking at what was going on globally. And I think that basically, you know, what happened in this period that I've been working is that in the early days, people were talking about policy change. But what's happened now is that they have been ensnared in a commercial view of the world, pushed by big business, to only talk about what we can do as individual consumers. And, and so moving away from thinking of ourselves as consumers to thinking of ourselves as community members and members of a democratic, you know, dem of, a, of a nation state where we have a chance to vote so that we also have a political voice. If we say that we're going to change the world through our consumer habits, 
we basically say the rich have more votes than the poor. Yes, of course. If we believe in justice, we have to think of ourselves as voters. Um, but, the, but the space that I want to look at more, most of all is the community space. It's the changing the I to a we and looking at what can we do at the community level. Mm, super powerful. And it's, it's really quite incredible to me how so many uh, are still unfortunately unaware of how big business got to such a size and then were able to influence political process. And that for me is one of the major reasons why we actually don't have an accurate picture of the world and how great it could be because of this enmeshment between business and politics. Exactly. And and the enmeshment of, you know, big money pressuring policies and government, but also in science and in the media. So almost every avenue of knowledge, as we've looked at, you know, what has been the consequence of using a certain technology or what has been the consequence of moving into urban high-rise living, more and more those studies have been done through the lens of what, what, what is profit for big business. They've not been done through the lens of what's good for human health and well-being or what's good for ecosystems. There hasn't been a voice for human and ecological well-being. There's a, the voice is more and more viewing the world through what is profitable. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> We could talk about all the ways that that manifests and has manifested. Absolutely, that that could go on for hours, um, right up to these insane parachutes that CEOs are receiving uh, when they step down or gracefully resign. <laughs> if someone's had to gracefully resign, that means they've done something wrong. Why would you give that person $60 million to head off on their way? It's an absolutely awful um problem it's huge and yeah. so you see, see that again, again why we need to really understand globalization as an economic process when i first was taught that by a actually a malaysian colleague in the 80s i was so relieved because i suddenly realized oh we don't have to fight this system at every level everywhere in the world and all the emanations and this supermarket coming in here and destroying these shops and this clear-cut forest and this poisoned lake. Ah, here is like the engine of the destruction. Here is the path whereby these big, clumsy businesses inhabited by ordinary people, they're not evil people, but these giant businesses cannot respect diversity. They cannot have the eyes and the hearts and the the feelings that are needed to engage with life in an appropriate way. So anyway, the escalation of all that happened through globalization. And that's also why in every country, if you look back, you will see that this, you know, this corruption of politics was nothing like as bad 40, 50 years ago. In every country you look at, you can see this escalation. So now today it's high time that we step back and try to understand how and why did this happen and what can we do about it? Absolutely. And if you look at America as probably the most obvious and exaggerated example of the train wreck path that we are on from, from that perspective, 
um, you can see how businesses have literally hitched a ride on either side of the aisle to become this big fight. Oh, okay. So if I'm with that party, then I literally have to do all those things because those businesses own us. And if I don't, I lose power. And then if I lose power, I don't get to be here and that sucks. So I'll just do whatever they tell me to do. And that's happening on both sides of the aisle. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So for me. And the, literally also, by the way, literally often the same big businesses are yes. running on both sides. Oh, if yeah. you look at the donation yeah. patterns, yeah. so much money from like the same type of industry going to both different sides and that creates the fighting um, and who's the favourite child. So it's awful. Um, and what I love about the community conversation, the localization conversation, is it's a very peaceful antidote, isn't it? Yes, it is. It and is. It's, it's about the overlaps and the connection and where we're the same, exactly. not this con- continued drive. Yeah. Differentiation. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. And it's because what localization is about then as an antidote to this commercialization which has made us dependent on bigger and bigger businesses further and further away. And because of the power of those global businesses, they have come into every national economy, destroying the small and the local, then even the regional, in many cases, the national industries. So in a healthy world, what we need for sure are some larger industries for certain products, but part of our work is to highlight the central importance of looking at food production. Of course, where our water comes from, who owns it, who controls it is just as important. And then, you know, food, shelter, clothing to some extent. But in today's world, I really want people to stop and for a minute think about what would happen if they do have a climate emergency, which more and more of us are experiencing around the world. And what would happen if the supply lines were uh, interrupted as happened in COVID and it's happening with climate disaster and now the war in Ukraine that the global supply lines are threatened. Then what we'll see is that in every community on this planet, virtually, I mustn't speak in such absolute terms, People could manage with the clothes they have. They could manage with the buildings they have. They would even generally find that their water comes from relatively close to where they are. But food, within three days, the supermarket shelves start emptying. And so I want to make a big, big plea for people to take this issue of food and farming very seriously. And I want to do that in the light of the potential crises Uh, that are likely to escalate. But I also want to do it as one of the most healing, inspiring, practical, and joyous things that they can get involved with. And in Local Futures, we launched something called World Localization Day, and we're celebrating around the world all these localization initiatives, which are mostly grounded in rebuilding local food economies. There are many that have gone on to do local business alliances, local financing, community energy, but it's the local food movement that is so 
as I tried to say, first of all, so essential, but it's also the most joyous, life-affirming, inspirational thing that's happening in the world. Uh, there's nothing that I find more yeah, inspiring than the young, young people now who are deciding they actually enjoy farming because when they join the local food movement, it's joining a movement where small, diversified farms do better than large monocultures. Farming in the industrial monocultures started with slavery. It went on to migrant work. It's not something that most people would want to do. Stand in a field and pick strawberries all day or cotton or tea or apples, whatever it is, the monotony of it. And because they're so unnatural, the monocultures, they almost always entail toxic chemicals of one kind or another because it's so unnatural. But the small diversified farms are a little bit of a, yeah, they're like the, the ground for becoming human again, for becoming, coming back home to where we belong. Because 99% of our time on this planet, we were in intergenerational communities and we were deeply connected to the land, particularly through the harvesting, processing and dealing with the whole food cycle from the land to the table. And so it's a type, I think it's in our DNA. When I look yeah. at how people thrive in those uh, projects and so on, I, I'm convinced it's in our DNA. Absolutely. And to come back to what you said before, that there is no unemployment in the natural world, you only need to spend a few days on a farm to know there is never nothing to do. You are useful all the time and you have a deep sense of purpose all the time. Uh, and if we look at mental health issues, one of the key drivers of mental health decline is a lost sense of purpose in the human being. What is it all for? Why am I even here anyway? Yeah. And, 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 and by the way, I do want to stress there too, that maybe even more fundamental is the isolation. Because again, we're social animals, we evolve in groups, in intergenerational groups. So the isolation linked to doing work that you have no, you don't see any benefit of it, you don't see any of the people who are using or benefiting from what you've done, you're in this, this you're a cog in this huge machine. So again, the, the connection in community and the sense of doing something useful and meaningful. And by the way, here in Baron, you know, we had terrible floods, really very, very frightening and ongoing. But what was so beautiful in that was seeing the community spirit. And I remember hearing about, you know, friends of friends who had suffered from depression for years and they were happier than they had been in years because they were out every day in community doing useful, meaningful, helpful work. And they could see the benefits. They were all heroes. They were all important. They weren't, you know, yeah, behind a screen somewhere feeling useless. Purpose and connection, huh? Yeah. It's not yeah. rocket science. Yeah. <laughs> um, in, okay. So let's then talk about um, a just transition uh, to localization because I often think about this. You know, here I am teaching people about 
you know, additives, preservatives, ultra processed food and the hyper intense energy of these foods from the way that they're farmed in the raw materials through to the transportation, through to the waste at the end, like all the things, awful stuff. But if we just overnight decided to outlaw ultra processed food, for example, millions of people would be without work and stuck in a high rise building in the city and have no path forward. And so. But, but yes, let's talk about it. Yeah. If overnight we committed to policies to support a path of diversification and localization in less than a year, we'd Mm. start seeing benefits Mm. and we'd see them on both sides of the chain. So even if we're talking about, let's not import oranges from California when we got our own oranges here in Australia. Again, as we started with the orange production here in the same way, the contract to California would be told, no, you're not going to be selling to Australia. So why don't you start growing for your home market instead? And Mm. the thing that's so key in all of this is that the policies would be supporting diversification on the land. Yeah. This is a message that's not getting out clearly enough. So how do we get it out? What do we do? Well, essentially, we, I guess one of the first steps is to realize that as common sense as it is what I'm saying, and as much as people respond and say, of course, local food makes sense, and it's happening, what they're not aware of is that in the mainstream media, it's almost impossible to get a film or even an interview out that really spells out the dramatically urgent obvious need to shift policy to start this process of diversification with a central focus on the real needs you know and as i said number one is the food of course you have to be sure the water is clean but remember the pollution of the water more than anything is linked to industrial food production particularly in australia but around the world the global food system that our governments are subsidizing and removing any regulations from through trade treaties, that global food system contributes more than anything else to climate change, toxic ecosystems, and through that also to cancer, to, you know, processed unhealthy trans fats, foods that nobody should be eating. And so, What do we do? What you're doing? One of the most important things is education as activism. And it's education with a smile. It's education with kindness. That's my favorite kind because then you take people along for the ride instead of ostracizing people or making them feel guilty, which is the worst way to create change for me personally. You can see the energy when you nag someone and you say, you know, half the battle with uh, one of my courses, Go Low Talks, for example, is actually teaching people how to have the conversation with the teenager, with the partner that takes them along for the ride in their home when that mum is super excited and really on board instead of we're not using any more of that, it's toxic, and, like, downing it in flames and then of course what's a teenager going to do they're going to arc up and say well stuff you I'm not going to listen to you I'm going to use it anyway and um and so we need to 
actually all become better, I see, as, as you've just pointed out as well, which I'm so glad, is at the vocabulary of um, taking people along for a ride instead of I'm better than you because I know this stuff and you're not doing it right. I mean, that just... It's, there's also a very big difference between articulating clearly, you know, the mess we're in and being clear about how really bad a lot of these foods are, but also understanding that we're all trapped in a system where time pressures and financial pressures push us in the wrong direction. So we need to be kind and compassionate to ourselves and to others and be willing to make compromises while still doing everything we can to try to shift in a direction that supports our own health and the health of the planet. But again, that's where I feel the community side is so important. So for the mother who's dealing with teenagers who want to use products that they know are possibly going to cause cancer or something, you know, they, I think one of the best ways is to reach out to friends in the community and try to create more of a group awareness so that the individual child is not isolated as the only one who's not, you know, wearing this or not doing uh, because we are social animals and, and children are desperate to belong. This is how we, in a healthy society, that's how people socialize and grow up, is, is by joining a group, becoming part of it, feeling a sense of belonging, feeling loved, respected, seen, and heard. So, yeah, joining with community efforts and trying to do things in a more intergenerational way that's another way of connecting and building the conversations that can be hopefully go a bit further. Yeah, absolutely. And so for city people then, does localization really just start to mean tapping into community projects, the local beehive, the local veggie garden where you drop off your compost, have a chat and pot some new seedlings? Uh, is that really as simple as this can be to starting well, the it's movement? Def it's definitely a step in the right direction. I would urge people to not only look at urban ag, as it were, but also support those efforts that go beyond that. And mm. that's something that we've been supporting a lot around the world, and that is the establishment of farmers' markets yes. that are bringing farmers and growers from the region into the city. Yeah, brilliant. People, people aren't aware that previously, you know, most of the cities did get most of their food from the region. Mm. It's really in the last 30, 40 years with the takeoff of this new form of globalization. Yeah. And I, instead, I actually, you know, yeah. I remember, um, uh, you know, we were very typical 80s. Um, oh, how exciting is that? Shite, bright, briny, uh, sorry, shiny, bright, new thing. Uh, family in a in a city so uh, I don't come from a, a, a background where I was raised to know the natural order of things and the local seasonal food and so I remember when we saw cherries at the supermarket in July which is obviously <laughs> completely impossible for Australians to find we were excited because it was exciting to see something that you normally wouldn't be able to get in July, just like um, it, it, just like being able to get 
asparagus, you know, which you then find out comes from Mexico and is an environmental disaster. Uh, and so I think part of it is actually redefining what success looks like, what exciting looks like. Uh, yeah, and it, it is partly that, but I also want to point out that, again, I feel if people could look honestly at what's happened, what they would see is that, yes, in these supermarkets, you'd be getting this amazing cheeses from France and amazing Japanese food from Japan and cherries in the winter and so on. But what people don't know is that the broccoli and the avocados and so on that are being produced right in the region are now coming from Argentina or that the garlic is coming from China that things have been flown or shipped to China to be deboned or processed and flown back again. They don't know that. And I think what most of us would probably agree to is to shift policies so that our taxes support as much diversification as possible. In other words, let's move away even, you know, from even macadamia monoculture on five acres. Let's encourage that they actually bring in something else because every step of the way they do that, it makes it easier to do things naturally. And one of the reasons for that is, even if you just have a number of things, even if you had some chickens under there and you sold your eggs, or if you had uh, some berries and bushes, and if you had some, uh, whatever, the diversity means that one hailstorm, one drought, one uh, flood isn't going to destroy everything. That's right. So the, and fear, yeah. the fear isn't as great, mm. but also because you're creating more natural ecosystems, nature itself thrives more. So, I think we would all agree that we prefer to use our taxes to encourage fresh local food as rich and diverse as possible. And yes, if we want to buy asparagus when it doesn't grow in our, in our country, sure, people can import it, but then you would pay more for imported asparagus than you do for a local bit of broccoli. Yeah, absolutely. Like we have a completely false economy now. We do. Things that have been tra transported from the other side of the world are cheaper than things from a mile away. Mm. And that's what's destroying local everywhere. And we have that with alcohol as well you see you can get your london dry gin tanqueray for 40 bucks at the bottle shop but a beautiful local distiller making the melbourne gin company exactly. gin is a hundred dollars yeah, and exactly. it's crazy yeah absolutely crazy mm. yeah okay and so uh something that you said there around um our tax dollars going to diversification uh, I see an unfortunate trend, and this is probably the globalization issue of mass corporates talking about fake beef and, you know, synthetic soy protein nuggets for protein and things, taking us away from a conversation of diversification in agriculture as opposed to a shift away from agriculture. Yes, which that's is right. Crazy. And, exactly. you know, you're seeing this happen with the Irish farmers now. Yes. Uh, you know, a million sheep are going to be put down. I mean, I'm sure that's not what the vegans would want either. No. Right? So yeah. what we need is diversification. That's yes. the health. Yes. That is exactly. the carbon sequestration potential. So exactly. how do we shift 
I mean, our politicians are dictated to by advisors. At the end of the day, they're not experts. Yeah. Do we change the advisors? Do we write the letters? What does that look like? Well, I would say that first we have a period where podcasts like yours and and others, there are lots of them, we need to somehow build up enough of a language to really build a movement for this. So we've had an environmental movement, but even within that environmental movement, we've had compartmentalization. Right now there's a focus on climate, but not actually enough on toxicity and the use of pesticides and glyphosate, the destruction of the soil. We, We so urgently need a movement where we understand that the economic drivers of what our governments tax, what they subsidize, and what they regulate, and what they deregulate, those mechanisms could be used overnight to turn us in the right direction. Again, right now, you know, giant global businesses pay almost no tax, and yet they are subsidized with huge amounts of money supporting the global infrastructure. Well, and a lot of and that was born from the Second World War, the big grain farmers feeding the world, right? Well, you see this again, they weren't feeding the world. You see, we've had a lot of propaganda and what the subsidies that went to agriculture, a lot of it was actually a subsidy to the middlemen, the Kellogg's, that produced the cereal and could buy the grain for almost nothing because of our taxes. And then they turn around and sell it to us at a high price and, and then create this situation where the extraction of by the few at the expense of the many has been going on for a long time. It's been building up. And I am so convinced that if more people understood this from left and right, from whatever gender, whatever race, indigenous or not indigenous, we would all agree that as a society, as a community, it's in our interest to change that. And it's not about demonizing the people who are pushing, you know, or or who are working in the big businesses, or it's just the common sense. And now what's becoming almost a necessity for survival. We have to support the real economy and the most abundant renewable resource we have is actually the overabundant renewable resource of human beings, human hands, eyes, hearts, care, to now restore ecosystems, which have been damaged primarily, not by human beings. We get a lot of narratives about poor people, clear cutting and so on. The clear cutting has been done primarily by big industry to extract wealth again. So it hasn't been people-driven. It's been industry-driven. Absolutely. And and this, we need to start realising that those industries using big blind technology, big blind chemicals with a reach across the planet have caused so much damage that on this crowded planet, we actually need more people on the land to do the food growing to do the reforestation, to clean up the water, to clean up the waste. And I'm not saying we need more people than we have, but I'm saying that we need to liberate a lot of people who are imprisoned in a system where the only place to get a decent job is in the city. 
and more and more farmers by policy now are being destroyed. And you, you were talking about Sri Lanka, now Ireland, also in Holland. We have blind policies, many of which sound fine. Like in Holland, it's about nature. It's about climate change. The, the organics in Sri Lanka, you know, was basically about monocultures for export. It wasn't actually healthy policies. Anyway, so the real divide now between local businesses and national democracy versus global corporations that are lawless, footloose and free and pressuring through the media, through science, through our governments to take us in a direction that is, can only operate in monoculture, which means it's deadly. It's really, so we have to open our eyes to that. So what do we do? I'd say number one is the education. It's self-education, it's spreading the word. And I would urge everyone to try to join in a group, maybe just three people, Often families are not moving in the same direction. So it might be friends, it may not be neighbors, your neighbors may be still going along with the dominant direction uh, for a number of reasons. Um, but if you find a few people are saying, I, you know, I really want to try to figure out why, why do we have so many crises now? Do we even remember that 10 years ago, did we have this much going on? No, there's a reason for it. And the reason has to do with the economy. And that's not something you or I individually are going to change. It's not either that we're going to change it just by our shopping habits. We can come together in community and create new structures. We can start supporting the small in agriculture, in business. We can start supporting each other, but also do the educational activism to demand policy change and no, with a global perspective. Yeah. Oh, I couldn't agree more. So something comes up there where what we have today because of this work, and I believe that this was part of the globalisation trajectory, polarisation suits them because it's much better to have us fighting each other than unifying and going, actually, you guys yes, suck yes. here. Yeah, but and listen, so- also, i just sorry to interrupt you there, no, but keep okay. in mind that the film, The Social Dilemma, mm. it actually spelled out for us that the algorithms know it. So here were people from Silicon Valley who were warning about allowing these technologies to be developed, to go further, and to even to stay as they are, they were saying the algorithms know that divisiveness and polarization is profitable. So I started understanding that actually it's a system that is technology-based and where algorithms are literally like these evil creatures sniffing out how anger, polarization, and even violence are lucrative. So it's not a human being who's able to sit and look at the whole world and plan, oh, we're going to polarize and separate. It's more this machine-like structure. That's and what that's I mean. That's what we yeah. must stop. Mm. We must stop that. Yeah, yeah. I, I did mean that. It's, it's more like the system has yeah. created this 
it, this literal profit engine through yes. polarization. It's better yes. for us to be fighting each other. Yes. It's better for business, literally. Exactly. And and so for me, what I find interesting then about the challenge that lies ahead, I want to be really clear about how tough this is for ordinary people who have been forced into these polarised groups to understand is that people are so volatile now in public conversation around difficult topics that have been, have forced polarization that I can't talk to my friend who's vegan, for example, about climate change and diversity of farming being the most important thing that we could possibly do. We can't have that conversation right now because it's too volatile. So can you step us through some tips there where me and my friend can find the overlaps? Now, I'm just creating a me and my friend as a fictional dynamic um, because it's something I literally obsess over and try to talk about with friends that I know have been polarised into all sorts of groups. We're not allowed to have those conversations without somebody feeling very afraid on one side of that aisle Um, because anything that's not the black and white, I feel safe because this is my reality that I can construct around myself. Um, I just think it's a very interesting um, conundrum with farming with pharmaceutical with what is the truth and what are facts is that people are so hedged that we can't have complex nut outs if you know what I'm saying yeah absolutely I it's it's very very scary and it's very visible and it's happening in every country again America in a more extreme way um and we do need to be very, very aware of it. And I, I would say, what can we do? I would say that trying to have podcasts and maybe even, you know, maybe what would help is for you to come together with some other people who really want to create this discourse, who want to have a fair and balanced conversation, weighing up, say, both sides of veganism or both sides of what right now, the whole transgender movement and the whole gender issue, where can we have a conversation about it and where we feel uncomfortable and where we don't. I think we need to make more of an effort to create groups, whether face-to-face, like little, little gatherings in our community halls or online, to have those conversations of a number of voices on both sides, where, you know, with people who really are passionate about these issues, as you know, they are, whether gender or veganism. Um, And see, from my point of view, this has been building up as part, again, of this whole globalization. Yes. So in the universities, I was getting really upset already in the 80s or certainly 90s, with postmodernism, it was becoming unacceptable to say that men and women were different. Mm. If you did, you were an essentialist, and that was nasty. And I was trying to say, wait a minute, postmodernists, you say you're deconstructing everything, but you're not even looking at this system 
of global corporations having more and more power, that's the system we need to deconstruct. Yeah. You're not seeing how our whole society is being shaped by that and part of the shaping is polarization. And again, whether that was already back then, algorithms, I don't know. I don't think it was, you know, a group of white men with big fat cigars sitting around the table trying to destroy us. But, but the, the, when you look at the foundations of this economic system, of this global centralized economy, then you can see it was rotten from the beginning. It was from the very outset based on forces, based on extracting wealth for the few at the expenses of many. And we look honestly how it's built up, how fossil fuels gave that those elite structures more and more power, what those fossil fuels did with pesticides, with many toxic pharmaceuticals, with chemical fertilizers, how they, how they destroyed the soil, turned it into a dust bowl. Now the big danger is, because people aren't looking at the big picture, they're falling into the trap of believing that the new discourse coming from the top about regenerative agriculture, about veganism, about uh, carbon, about uh, a Green New Deal, about renewables, using biodiversity, using, even using the language of local, we're now getting a very, very sophisticated um, system where we are talking about think tanks also trying to undermine the opposition from grassroots movements quite consciously oh yes we so saw it now, with the un even this year um you know excluding small farmers from yeah the conference yeah the, the yeah. global food summit yeah, and that's <laughs> right that's right it's, yeah it's terrifying yeah yeah mm. it, it is terrifying and yet you know, what I've been uh, seeing all these years is that the mainstream culture is actually shifting in the right direction. Mm. This polarization right now is very frightening, but there's also this very clear desire on the part of the majority to have a healthy relationship with nature, to, you know, respect for indigenous cultures is growing respect and love for life for animals you know all these animal videos which i also like to watch <laughs> i love them now too that, yeah <laughs> you know that is such a clear sign of this very deep longing for a connection to nature and an appreciation of it and it's broad and it's growing and so i think people are very ready for a new story and a new story that understands that the divide is much more about footloose, global, anonymous, large-scale structures that impose bureaucracy, including then the government being a handmaiden to impose a bureaucratic, mechanized view of the world so that every teacher, every doctor, every lawyer have to deal with more and more paperwork and numbers and abstractions and have almost no time to look at the client, you know, the student, the patient, the whatever in the eye, and to and to be alert to the uniqueness of every situation. And so you see, and that's again where the decentralization, so that we have more human scale structures, more human beings interacting with human life and with the rest of life. That's really what we need. We don't need more people on this planet. We just need to liberate them 
from being imprisoned in this urbanizing, globalizing, competitive rat race. Mm, absolutely. Less subways and more five-acre farms. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to carry yeah. us a long way. And, and, and a clear vision that, yes, city can be fine, but a balance between city and country. Cities have overgrown their limits in almost every part of the world. They've destroyed smaller cities. They've destroyed villages. And right now, if we don't wake up to this sort of massive attempt to destroy farmers, this is central part of it, uh, we're, we're going to be in even more trouble. Yeah. So could one of the action steps then be for us to, like I get the part where it's about shopping and starting to bring things in regionally and getting those direct relationships with regional farmers, but I'm looking for that next step above where do we write to our local MP concerned no, about? No, not yet. Not no, yet. Right, okay. now, right now what we should be doing much more with clarity is writing to one another. In other words, ah, particularly, yep. particularly to, as you were saying before, you know, this fragmentation around veganism and so on, that's one part of it, but it's, First of all, recognizing that it's the economic system that's the problem, and we have to bring that into any political discussion. If we think we're going to deal with politics without looking at economic policy, we haven't understood anything. And so there, you know, the things that are happening is that pressure from the bottom, from local community groups, almost all of it, people haven't come together, have led to some policy changes at the level of national governments, local governments, even some regional government. And that's very important. But if we want to speed the process up, we need to focus much more on essentially building up a new economy movement. And it could happen very quickly if we understood that our message would be the same economic policies that are creating climate the climate crisis, toxic pollution, lousy food, are creating a scarcity of jobs, making it impossible for our young people to even dream of having a home. People are struggling to pay the rent, to put food on the table. Middle-class people wake up. The same economic policies that are impoverishing our planet are impoverishing us. Here is where we have an opportunity to come together again against the divide that's being forged by preventing people from putting those dots together and seeing that picture clearly. So the environmental groups are funded to just focus on carbon, keep going on with the message that says, you're selfish, you're still driving your car, you obviously don't care. You know, why aren't yeah. you buying local organic food? How dare you go and visit your grandma in England? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. And so instead, if we say, wait a minute, and really appeal to the growing number of people who are saying, I love the earth, but I just, I've got to have a leader that's going to promise to grow the economy, whatever. I'm going to grow the economy, grow the economy. And because they haven't learned that as the economy grows, according to these rules, it's an artificial economy and it's actually making you poorer. So it's that disconnect that's got to be spelled out. It's there, it's true. There are facts that any idiot, you know, if they really took the time to examine them, would have to recognize this is true. 
Well, you know, I had I had the opportunity to talk to Nobel Prize winning economists and, you know, I tried to say, you know, right now you're encouraging governments to subsidize and deregulate global businesses that don't pay tax. And in the meanwhile, every other business and individual is squeezed for, for taxes and with heavy, heavy regulation. We need to reverse that. And the response of one of them was, do you really think we could do that in a democracy? <laughs> in other words, in other words, he doesn't realize that he is helping to promote a lie. And in a way, he's right in that people have been so blindly convinced that growing the economy is good for them. So, you know, but we need the truth from anyone who's actually studied it and who will see. Yeah. Gosh, you deserve the Nobel. You deserve to be the Nobel laureate. And then it makes me think, well, if that's our supposed most brilliant mind and they can't see the path forward to a greater justice, peace uh, and equity, yeah. then that system of who we decide is the greatest mind is also broken. Absolutely. It's mm. been broken for a long time. Yeah. I am actually an alternative Nobel Prize winner. <laughs> I know. I remember we spoke about it. Oh, a much better you? prize. Yes. Well, the alternative <laughs> Nobel Prize was about trying to identify people who were concerned with the welfare of humanity and not just the top people in science and uh economics it's very um, yeah no it's been on the wrong path for a long time i would say because it's been a path of over specialization and rachel carson who should definitely have had a nobel prize she you know she warned us in the 60s yeah she sure did always specialized approach and how disastrous it was so that's yeah. the so it's time for change. Uh, thank you so much for joining me again. I really feel like we are on an exciting precipice and it's about all of us just being brave to open up those conversations, connect, not be afraid if someone arcs up straight away, try and move through it, try and say, well, let's look at each other's sides and see you know, what might be in the middle that we could agree on. Uh, and I think that for me uh, is something, it's something I'm very personally passionate about and I feel very um, excited that you identified that as one of the most important paths forward because, yes, it hurts and it's uncomfortable, but it's the payoff is just going to be beautiful when we realise we all have so much more in common than we have differences and, and how that then feeds into this beautiful sense of community purpose and relocalization. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's great to know that you're doing what you're doing and I hope we can collaborate more in the future. Oh, my, my door is always open for that, Helena. Thank you so much for your beautiful, brilliant mind and sharing your work with the world. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social, on Instagram, at Life or one word, or my personal Instagram, uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Low Tox Life uh, and, of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low Tox 
Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US, about €27 and about £25, you get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lowtoxlife.com, hit the Explore tab and you'll see Join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.